From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Mark um, chapter 10. We're in the book of Mark. We're journeying through it. If uh, you don't know what the book of Mark is, it's a book in the New Testament of the life of Jesus. So if you grab a Bible and you go to the New Testament, it's the second book. If you don't know how to get there, you go to your table contents and you can get to that book. If you have a Bible on your phone, you can just you know, go to the, the Bible books, click on Mark chapter 10. Now, just before we read, just a quick note, on, on much of the, the New Testament letters and gospels, they're not meant to be read paragraph by paragraph and piece by piece. It was actually probably like Mark's gospel was probably read like to a church in, a, in one setting, in one sitting. You know, the whole gospel. It's one big long story. Uh, but we are taking it piece by piece and we come to a familiar story today of a rich, young, and powerful man. And I'm, I've titled this The Rich, Young, and powerful. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. That's where we're going to read today. This is the story of a man who had, by all worldly definition, everything. He had money, right? He had wealth. He had riches. He had, he had youth. The Bible says that he was a, a young man or likely a young man. So he, his bones probably didn't crack when he stood up. And he had power. Luke's gospel tells us that he was a ruler, that he had position. So he had Authority. This is a man who had it all. So we're going to pray. We're going to read the story and take it chunk by chunk and just allow God to speak to our hearts. So bow your heads and let's pray one more time together. Father, as we turn our attention to the scriptures today, I pray that just as you illuminated uh, and inspired, Father God, the authors to write these words, we pray in Jesus' name, would you illuminate those words to us now? And would you speak Holy Spirit Lord, as I share, help me to speak, God, with clarity, but I pray more importantly, would you speak to every heart and every person about their life, about their position, about where they are, and would, would we, God, be the kind of people, as we soon will learn, Lord, that turn from anything that hinders and holds us back from putting you first in our lives. And so I pray that in Jesus' name, especially in this season, God, we, we're thankful for your word, we thank you for the gospel of Mark, and we pray, God, that we learn something in a way that transforms us to be a little bit more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So many of you are probably familiar with the story of The Great Gatsby, a novel written by F. Scott Fitzgerald in the 1920s, I believe it was. I believe there's a movie made with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio about it as well. I'm not sure if it connects totally to the story in the novel, but the novel is set in Long Island, New York, and it tells the story of a man named Jay Gatsby who was born into a very poor family, but later on he became a self-made millionaire. Poor, but became a millionaire by selling illegal alcohol. Now, I don't recommend that, but this is how he made his money. And he became one of the richest people in Western New York. So here's a guy who was born with nothing, and now he had everything. Now, he fell in love with a beautiful girl named Daisy Buchanan, who lived across the water on the east side, which was like the posh side, 
Uh, but turns out she was married. And so he would throw these lavish parties, these big, massive parties, and, and display his wealth in, a, in hopes that he would impress Daisy and that she would fall in love with him. And what ends up happening in the story is they have an affair. Now, the rest of the story, it's filled with like drama and betrayal and even death. But the author's intent is to show what the pursuit of the American dream had become. Now, I read this week that the American dream was originally about hope. It was about hope for a better tomorrow. But Fitzgerald in this story in the 1920s, this is 100 years ago, conveys in the end of the story that the American dream of happiness and of individualism had disintegrated into the mere pursuit of wealth. Now, all these pursuits, the pursuit of wealth for wealth's sake, right? We, money, the pursuit of, of happiness through circumstance, of individualism, they're a part of us. If we're honest, we all want these things to some degree and we don't even think that they're necessarily wrong. Like being an individual is not wrong. Wanting to be happy through circumstance is not wrong. Unfortunately, you know, at a, at a plain view of the gospel message of Jesus, like these are not the heart of the pursuit of a follower of Jesus. That Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and dust destroy, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven. He says to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. These are the messages of Jesus. Now in the story today, we read of a man who had it all. He had riches, he had power, he had youth, and unlike Jay Gatsby, he had belief, he had devotion, but in all that, he still lacked. Now the story goes like this. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. We're gonna read verse 17 first. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here's a rich and powerful man, young man, running up to Jesus and falling on his knees. This would have been out of character for a person in his position. So immediately the story kind of alludes to the fact that whatever is on his mind, this question that he has to ask is pressing, it's weighing heavy on him, enough for him to break character. What do I have to do? What do I have to do in and of myself to inherit eternal life? Now this guy, again, he had it all. He had wealth, he had power, he had position, he had youth, and yet he feels insecure in his future destiny. And that is part of the problem with chasing after the so-called American dream, right? Is we think that we will have a measure of peace within us. We think that it will bring fulfillment, but it actually never does. And here's what I think. We all claim to know that to be true. I even say that right now. We claim that to be true. But unless we've actually obtained a measure of wealth and position, there's still a part of us that feels like we'll be more fulfilled if we just had a little bit more. If we just had a little bit more, if I just lived here, if I just had that, if I went there, I would feel fulfilled. I see this in my kids all the time. When they get fixated on something that they want, they can't think of anything else. They feel like that thing is gonna satisfy. And then they get it, and then it's like a couple days later, they don't even think about it anymore. Now, like many celebrities and wealthy, this guy feels like he's insecure. He does not feel secure in his financial security. He doesn't feel like it's fulfilled him. He feels like there's something lacking. Now, a quick glance would say that the question he asks is a good question, right? We should all probably be asking the question, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? He wants to know, what do I gotta accomplish? 
to get there. But the question itself shows some lack of understanding because this guy viewed life as something, eternal life, as something to be achieved by doing good, by being good. But eternal life is not achieved by goodness. Doesn't matter how good you are. In the first century uh, way of speaking, eternal life um, meant something different. It doesn't mean, you know, the place you go to when you die. But the, the first century Jews, they separated time into two ages. There was this present age, which we are still kind of in, which was marked by evil and injustice and pain and death and disease and demonic um, rebellion. And then there was the age to come, which was the world in the future remade new. It was, it was the renewed world created by God. It's what John speaks of in Revelations chapter 21, when heaven comes to earth and there's a new heaven and a new earth. It's the age after Jesus would judge the whole world, resurrect the dead in Christ, and usher in the kingdom of God. So in his mind, he wanted to know, what must I do now so that I can step into that day? After the day of judgment, after the day of the Lord, how, what do I need to do now so I can step into that new world? It's not about going off to heaven when he dies. What do I need to do to inherit that age to come? But here's the problem with this question, is it's a religious question. It was, it, 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 he had in his mind a religious outlook on access to the kingdom of God. And we often fall into this. Now, here's a quick difference between religion and faith and relationship in the way of Jesus. Religion says, what do I need to accomplish? What do I need to do in order to access, to have, to obtain salvation? Relationship and faith in the way of Jesus says, we can't do anything in of ourselves. And so we trust and have faith in what Jesus has already accomplished. Religion says, what do I need to accomplish? Faith in Jesus says, it's already been accomplished for me. That's the difference. This guy's view is, what do I need to do? Good teacher, what do I need to do? How do I access that age to come, eternal life? Now, this is how Jesus responds. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I'm not even gonna answer your question. I'm just gonna pull it back a little bit. Why do you call me good? Now, it was customary for people in this time, especially people, um, it, it was customary to greet people who had prestigious position like rulers and rabbis with flattery. So this is probably a greeting that a rich, powerful man like himself used often and would receive often. But Jesus is asking the question, why do you call me good, to, to kind of provoke some reflection in this man. Why do you and who you are call me good? Now, Jesus knows that he doesn't know that Jesus is God incarnate, right? He knows that this man, this rich young ruler, doesn't know that Jesus is God, is divine in nature. Because the word good in the, in the biblical sense, in the biblical understanding, it was only rightfully used for God. In fact, throughout the scriptures, the Bible makes this claim that no one is good, no one is righteous. Da David said in Psalms chapter 14, he says, there is no one who does good, not even one. And Paul quotes this later in Romans. Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. So Jesus is either God or he's not good. Why do you call me good? I'm either God or I'm, I'm not good. And I think this is something we really need to ask ourselves. Like if you're tuning in today and you're new to church and you're new to faith, maybe you haven't really accepted this Jesus thing or this faith thing, Jesus can't be good and made the claims he made without being divine in nature. It doesn't work. He cannot be just a good moral teacher. It doesn't make sense because he also claimed to be God. You can't be a good moral teacher and claim to be God and not be God or you'd be crazy or a liar. 
Those are our only options. And so he's actually pointing um, this man to the fact that no one is good enough. No one is good enough except God alone because there is no goodness in yourself that you can gain access to the age to come. So he continues, he says in verse 19, he says, you know the commands, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus again is trying to provoke reflection. Now as a Jewish man, he would have understood the laws. He would have known the commandments and he would have known them well. Now this is actually what Jesus quotes here. This is actually just the latter half of the 10 commandments. This is uh, the, the latter half of the 10 commands often called the second table. So the first set uh, commands are called the first table which deal with our relationship and devotion and worship to God. But the second set referred to as the second table, laws five through 10, reveal or deal with directly with a person's relationship to others. Now, scholars suggest that Jesus um, says this to suggest a couple things to this young man, or to reveal a couple things. The first is this. It's possible to keep the second set of commands, that second table, without keeping the first. It's possible to, to, to be good in relationship to others and not actually follow the commands of our, in our relationship and devotion and worship to God. Like if you ask people today in our society, in our world, um, about goodness, about their goodness, they'll refer to this second law. They'll say, I'm a good person, and it's always in relation to how they live and act in society, in direct relation to others. But Jesus is saying here that it, just because you followed that second set doesn't mean you've necessarily followed the first set of commands. And, and following the first set of commands always leads to following the second. You cannot, uh, you cannot serve God, love God, be devoted to God, and not inadvertently love your neighbor and love those around you. But what this guy's problem is, and what we'll soon find out, was actually with the first set of commands. Thou, thou have no, shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make yourself any idols. The second reason scholars suggest that he's actually saying these things um, is, is, to, is to ask him how he made his money. So in that time, in Jesus' day, uh, there was no middle class. There was, almost everybody lived in abject poverty. Only one to 2% um, lived in wealth. And they usually had wealth because of injustice or oppression. So when Jesus is, is saying, you know the commands, and he lists these, these, the second table of commands, he's actually asking the man, how'd you make your money? Did, did you lie? Did you cheat? Did you steal? Did you oppress? Is there any injustice? To which the young man says, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. There's no injustice. Honest gains only. I've attained my wealth without breaking law. I followed those commands. I'm a law-abiding Jew. He's firmly believed that he's kept the commands and kept them well. Now, for a Jewish boy, around the age of 12 is when you became responsible to obeying the law in and of yourself. You became, that's where the bar mitzvah comes in. It's a coming of age. It's stepping into manhood. And so he's saying from a young age, from the age of 12, I've kept these commands. And, and he's not just referring to these commands that Jesus said. He's referring to the whole law. He's referring to 613 commands in the Old Testament. And in his mind, he's kept them all. Teacher, all of these, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. And then Jesus replies this, and if you know the story, you know it well. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. It says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. This is the only place in Mark's entire gospel 
where it records Jesus saying that he loved somebody. He looked at the man, he looked beneath his wealth, he looked beneath his religious devotion, everything on the exterior to his deepest, darkest need, and it says that he loved him, loved him. Jesus sees beneath you, right? He sees beneath your exterior. He sees beneath your apparent goodness. He, he sees beneath your, your goodness in, in worldly terms. He sees you for who you truly are. He looks past your religious devotion and he sees your brokenness and he sees your sinfulness and he loves you. Jesus sees all that you are and he loves you. He knows your dark corners. He knows your secrets and he loves you. So he looks at this man, he says, one thing you lack. Now, if we were to hear that from any other source, we would have probably been offended. It would have considered to be harsh and unloving. But it's because he actually loved this man that he pointed them to the truth. See, Jesus loves you enough to convict you of your sin and to tell you where you're wrong. Like He loves you enough to, to give you conviction and to tell you where you're wrong. If you're not challenged by Jesus, if you don't, don't feel the conviction of the Lord as you learn his ways, as you grow in a relationship with him, then it's possible that you haven't experienced the depth of Jesus' love. Because love, a, a loving Jesus always uh, challenges for the purpose of growth. And I'm not talking about shame. Like the enemy shames us. He wants us to hide from God, right? That's the Garden of Eden story. Adam and Eve sinned. And then God starts walking in the garden and they hide in their shame. But Jesus always challenges for the purpose of growth. So he says to the man, one thing you lack in love, you're lacking something. Sell it all, everything you have, sell it all, give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me, come be my apprentice, come be one of my disciples. See, what this man failed to realize, and what so many of us fail to realize, is he actually served another God. This man had created an idol and put it before God. Wealth was his God. And he was more devoted to it than he was actually to God. And he was blinded to that truth because he believed that he kept all the laws perfectly. All these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus points out to something. He says, you're missing something. You're missing full, abandoned allegiance to God, to me. Sell everything, he's saying. Sell everything and turn from your God. And if you do, you will have treasure in heaven. See, this man had everything by worldly standards. He had the American dream. He had position, he had power, he had wealth, he had riches, he had youth, and yet he lacked the most important thing, and that was single-hearted devotion to God. Obedience to the very first command in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Go sell everything, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, when Jesus says treasure in heaven, he doesn't mean riches in the place you go to when you die. In, in New Testament theology, he's not, he's not saying you're gonna have a mansion. Actually, when Jesus refers to mansions, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I have in my house or father's rooms, it's actually wedding language to, to symbolize Jesus returning, that he's coming back for us, okay? But, but in New Testament theology, heaven isn't the place to, that you go to when you die. That's what we think of, but heaven is God's dwelling place in the here and now. That is God's dwelling place. That's where his throne room is in the here and now. So when he says treasure in heaven, it's actually God's storehouse for the future age to come. Think of it like a bank account. Heaven is the place that God is storing up for the future. One theologian put it this way, N.T. Wright, he said this. When Jesus says you'll have treasure in heaven, 
He doesn't mean that the young man must go to heaven to get it. He means that God will keep it stored up for him until the time when, in the age to come, all is revealed. The reason you have money in the bank is not to spend it in the bank, but so that you can take it out and spend it somewhere else. The reason you have treasure in heaven, God's storehouse, is so that you can enjoy it in the age to come when God brings heaven and earth together at last. And eternal life, as most translations put it, doesn't mean life in a timeless, otherworldly dimension, but in the life of the age to come. What he's saying is that it's the end of age, it's eternity, not just the place where we are with. See, Jesus, the Bible says that when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We are with God in the heavenly realms, right? But in the end time, when, when Christ returns, he's gonna resurrect the dead in Christ. All life will be judged. He'll eradicate all evil and he'll bring heaven to earth and we will have a physical dwelling place for all of eternity in the age to come. Another person put it this way. He says, it's not so much to have treasure somewhere else, but to have treasure sometime else. And so Jesus is inviting this rich young ruler to invest his money and stuff in a future kingdom, not in the present time. And so it says in verse 22 of Mark chapter 10, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So the truth is revealed. His God is revealed. His devotion, his heart is revealed. Money for him wasn't just a blessing from God. It was his God. He trusted it. He worshiped it. He gave it undue worth and value, and he got his fulfillment from it. That word sad in the original language actually means to be heavy with grief. And so he's grieving to give up his monies, to give up a part of who he is, to give up his identity. He's mourning is what he's doing. And we can be just like this man. It's so for easy for us to create an idol out of money, out of anything for that man. It's so easy for us to, to put something before God and not even know it, not even realize it. We're blind to it. And you never really know what you've made into an idol until you're asked by Jesus to give it up. Like you never really know what for you has been put in that position until the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says, hey, this is before me, you need to get rid of it. Sell it, give it away. The things that you have a hard time letting go of often are idols. The things that you have a hard time giving away are idols. The things that you have a hard time selling are idols. Maybe it's not even you can't sell your children, but maybe it's your children. In our culture, we worship our kids. We put our kids before anything else. And yes, there's a level of truth that we need to do that. We need to, we need to prioritize our children, but not before God. We create idols and we don't even realize it. Side note, if you feel that God is calling you to give up something, but it's not in line with scripture, it's actually contrary to scripture, then that's not God speaking. I've heard in the past of people believing that God is telling them to leave their spouse. That is not God speaking because both in the New Testament for, for, for those of us that are married to a believing spouse and for those of us who are married to an unbelieving spouse, God calls us to commitment. But just because you feel God leading you to give up something that doesn't line up with scripture is not God speaking because this is how God has clearly revealed his truth and his ways to us. So it says this in verse 23, it says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. They're amazed at his words because in Jesus' time, wealth equaled God's blessing. 
To be wealthy meant that you had God's favor. It was considered a reward for actually keeping the law. Most people expected that the rich would inherit the kingdom of God, not because they could buy their way in, but because it was seen as God's blessing and favor already on their life. And so what is Jesus doing? He's flipping the cultural idea around. He's saying, listen, just because you have wealth doesn't mean God's pleased with you. And for that day and age, just because you don't have wealth doesn't mean that God's displeased with you because they believe that. They believed that wealth was a sign of blessing and that to be unwealthy, to be poor was not. So Jesus says again, he says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard enough. It's just hard enough to enter the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, Jesus says that narrow is the road that leads to life. To consider the cost, to count the cost of discipleship, of following after him, because it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever tried to thread a needle? It is terribly difficult, unless you're a pro sewing machinist. I don't even know if that's a word for them, sewing machinist. But it's hard. He's saying it's hard enough. It's even more difficult for those who have wealth. Now, there's a lot of back and forth on what camel and the eye of the needle meant. Um, scholars, some scholars suggest that because outside the city there was a narrow gate that was referred to as the eye of the needle, that that's what Jesus pointed to, that it's hard for camels to get through that gate. Um, others say that the original um, Greek word for camel was actually misspelled, and if it was just tweaked a little bit, it would actually mean rope, as in like a, ro a sailor's rope. But Jewish rabbis used hyperbole all the time to express um, teachings. In fact, in the Talmud, which is uh, a collection of Jewish teachings and, and, and writings and, and laws, and, um, it speaks of an elephant passing through the eye of a needle. So what Jesus is doing is he's using a, an expression to, to describe an impossible situation. It is it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So the disciples hear this and they're like, who can be saved? Who then can be saved? If this rich man who is rich, he's moral, right? He's a law-abiding Jew and he's eager to inherit the kingdom of God. If he can't do it, the ideal candidate, the ideal recruit can't get to heaven, who can? Can you, can I? How do we do this? The disciples are probably like, this is impossible. And then Jesus says this, he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With you and me, this is impossible. We can't do anything. There's nothing that we can do that can inherit eternal life. We can't accomplish anything. You can't be a better person. You can't be nicer. You can't give away more stuff. Like you can't be gooder. Gooder's not even a word, but you can't be more good to inherit eternal life. With man, this is impossible. But with God, but not with God, all things are possible with God. What is he saying? He's calling them and he's calling us to a life of faith, to trust in something other than what you and I can do because what you and I can do is worth nothing. Isaiah chapter 64 actually refers to our goodness as filthy rags. That's like, you know, in, in today's terms, that's tampons, that's maxi pads, used ones. That's gross and disgusting, I know, but that's what it's, our goodness is, is equated to that. So we're not good. Only God alone is good. So Peter's like this. This is what Peter does, right? We all know Peter. He's the loud. He's the boisterous. He's the one that steps up first. He's the one that jumps out of the boat and tries to walk on water. That's who Peter is, right? And he says this. He says, we have left everything to follow you. 
We've left home, we've left family, we've, we've left job, and they actually did. They left, uh, like Peter and Andrew, his brother, they left a lucrative fishing business. They, with their father, they owned a boat. In the first century world, in Jewish times, like when most lived in abject poverty, that was wealth. Like they left a good business. Matthew was a tax collector. He was employed by, by Rome. He had wealth, right? And they said, we left everything. We've left home. We've left family. We've left work. And then Jesus says this. He says, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel, listen to this, will, ref, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, right now, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children's, and fields, along with persecutions, you gotta note that, and in the age to come eternal life. He's saying that you will reap in this time and in the next. Now, this is the beauty of the, of the community of God, of what it's supposed to be, okay? This, this is what he's referring to. If you have to leave your house, if for whatever reason you have to, you have to give up your home for, for the gospel's sake, for Christ's sake, then you'll have a place to stay in every town and every city and every country where there are followers of Jesus because we're a family. He's saying that if you have to leave your family, like maybe you have unsaved loved ones and for whatever reason, like you see this in a lot of um, Muslim nations where, where Muslims give, um, confess faith in Christ and they, they convert to Christianity and they're literally like kicked out of their family. They're, they're literally like expelled, they're, they're, they're renounced, like it it's actually happens. But he's saying that if you have to leave your family, you end up with brothers and you end up with sisters and moms and dads and the greater family of God. And then he says, if you have to leave your career, like heaven forbid you have to give up your job for Jesus, but if you did, let's say he calls you to leave your position and whatever role you have to go into the mission field, he's saying that you will have a life of purpose and meaning. Now notice again, along with persecutions, he's saying that life is hard. Like life is difficult, it's not easy. We don't, we all want a life that is free of difficulty. But that doesn't exist in this present age. He's saying along with the persecutions, you will reap a hundred times over. The question remains as we count the cross, is it worth it? That's what Jesus is bringing to, is it worth it? That's what he asked this man. Am I worth your money? Am I worth your money? Am I worth your identity? Because his identity was wrapped up in it. Am I worth it all? And it's here right at the end of this passage that he reassures his disciples that those who have given up everything will have everything, right? It's the first will be last and the last will be first. It's the great reversal. It's the flipping of the story. This rich young man who had everything and was unwilling to let it go will have nothing in the age to come. But those who have given up everything, who've sacrificed everything, will have in the age to come. So let me just reflect with you for a little bit. You know, some people, we try to change this passage to mean something that it's not. And we can take principles out of it and we can apply it um, to, to different things. Like we all have idols. We all have things in, in our lives that we put before God. And God calls us to examine those things and, to, and calls those things out. But the context of this verse is money. Like that's the context of this verse. verse. Nobody wants to follow Jesus with their money. Like nobody wants to follow Jesus with their money. Jesus was poor and he was homeless and nobody wants to be poor and homeless. Like how many of you, honest question, ask yourself, are willing to sell your house to follow Jesus? Like, like, like think about that. Think about the practicality of that. 
Who here is willing to sell your possessions to follow Jesus? Who here is willing to sell your car, your truck, your, your, your boat, your toys, your, your everything that you have? Now, what we often say, and I would agree, is we say, well, that's not what he's calling each of us to do. And, and, and maybe not. I don't know for sure. I don't think he is. But interestingly enough, that's what the early church did. Because they sold their possessions to help one another. They sold their fields to help one another. They supported the mission of God. They supported the furthering of the kingdom of God. And they were willing to sell it all to be a part of that. Maybe he's not asking us to sell our possessions, and I don't think he is. Maybe he is for you specifically, but not for the community whole. But I think he's asking us to be honest with ourselves. Have I given and have I trusted God with my money? Not so that I can get more, but if I sacrifice and give it up, will he take care of me? Like if I give away the money that is meant for my electrical bill, will he take care of me? That's the question. Will he provide? If I sell everything, will he provide? Constantine was the first Christian emperor, and when he professed faith in Christ, he made uh, the Roman Empire a Christian nation. And he, when he was baptized, he got all of his troops, all of his soldiers to be baptized with him. And so mounted on horses, full of armor, it says that they marched into the river to be baptized, but they held their swords out of the water because they would maliciously kill with that. And so they're like, everything's baptized unto God except for this. And I can't believe I'm gonna say this because I've heard so many pastors preach this over the years, but we do the same with our wallet. We do this, you can have it all, God, except my money. Every part of my world except my income. Take my life and breathe on except my toys, possessions, and house. This life that is now yours, except my dollar bill, y'all. That's what we do. You can have it all, except the part of me that I want the most. You can have it all. You can have my Sundays. You can have my weekdays. I'll read the scriptures. I'll, I'll serve in the church. You can have it all, except my bank account. Don't touch that. You can have it all. And we pray this, and we... We dare to come down to an altar to lift our hands and pay a lip service to say, you can have it all, except. And for some reason, we're blinded to that fact because we can come into a worship service, you can do it in your home, and you could worship wholeheartedly saying, you have all of me. But then hours later, we can go and say, except for this. And we don't even realize, oh, I'm not gonna give up watching this for that. I don't wanna, oh, you want me to, I know their need, but... I need to buy groceries this week. Yeah, oh man, they're having a really terrible time. And yeah, I could help, but that means I would have to sell something. You can have it all, God, except this. So for this man, money was his God. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Not impossible, but hard. Now listen, let me say this. Jesus isn't against wealth. Abraham was, was given, was blessed by God with wealth. The kings, David, Solomon, incredible amounts of wealth. Um, many of Jesus' followers had wealth. He, he ate uh, their food. He stayed in their houses. They supported his, his mission. Uh, one even bought his tomb when he passed away. The good Samaritan had money enough to take care of himself and pay for this, this, this person that was beaten and, and lost everything. And he, he paid for him to stay in the inn. Like, it's not, it's not about money. One, one commentator said this, Jesus isn't saying that poverty is the ideal way to live. That's not what this is about. But he's calling on the assumption that wealth is the ideal way to live. Calling on that assumption. 
So I wanna give you a couple things, um, just practically speaking, how to know money may be a problem for you. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up as I do. And we're gonna, we're gonna reflect and worship at the end and just allow God to speak to us, not just about money, but just idols in our life. How do you know money may be a problem for you? Number one is you can't give large amounts away, only small. Ooh. Number two is you think about how much you have to give, not how much you can give. The more you make, the less percentage you give. That's statistically true. Now, I say this generally, okay? You need to know and understand. I'm saying this generally speaking. Number four, you're scared to have less than you have because you'll think you'll be less happy. You see people who are doing better and you're jealous. And no matter how much more you get, you want more. You know, Jesus talks about money more than any other thing that he talks about, and it's almost never positive. In fact, money is the only thing that Jesus actually named as a God, mammon. He says, you can't serve both. You can't serve both God and money. See, see the question, see, money itself is not a problem. Money is not, is not wrong. The question is, does money serve us or do we serve our money? Do we own our stuff or does our stuff own us? Like, could we let it go today? This is really hard <laughs> teaching. And it's, again, it's not money. I was talking to someone this past, you know, past little while ago, someone from our church who was taking courses on biblical stewardship because as they gain financially, they wanna make sure they were following the heart of God. Like, it's not, it's not money. It's does, does money serve us or do we serve our money? See, money has a tendency to anchor our heart to the here and now to this present age and not in the age to come. It pushes and pulls us, um, our desires into the present age and not into eternal life. And so if that is true, then what Jesus is saying is, now is the time to invest, not spend. Not spend on toys, not spend on gadgets. And there's nothing wrong with toys and gadgets. I like toys and gadgets. But now is the time to invest, to invest in heaven. Now, I, I feel like someone might be thinking, why are you teaching on this now during COVID? Like, this is a really hard time. Can we talk about this later when we're all in better positions to receive this? I didn't plan <laughs> this this way. Like when we, when we planned to do, um, go through the book of Mark last year, we put it in the calendar. Like it wasn't like, oh, do you know what? I know that we're all gonna be struggling at this time. And so this is, this is the time to talk about it. But I do believe that God is sovereign and he knew that we'd be talking about this right now today. Because here's the thing, this is, a, this is a heart issue. This is a heart issue. It's not a financial position issue. It's not how much you have in the bank account issue. It's not about that. It's a heart issue. Because if you don't position your heart in times of lack, then you won't position your heart in times of plenty. Statistically, that's true. If you look at Canadian statistics, those who invest in the age to come will have plenty to spend in the age to come, but those who don't, won't. The first will be last, the last will be first. So here's what I want us to do is, is you're sitting in your home and you're listening to this or watching this, is I want us to bow our heads and reflect as the team leads us in worship. It's gonna lead us in a song we sang earlier, here again. 
And I just want us to be quiet before the Lord and, and let him speak to us about our idols, about our money, about this topic of this rich young ruler and, and what this means for us. What is in my life that I've put before God? Is that money? Maybe it's something else. But let's just quiet our heart as the team begins to lead us and let's just receive from God. Come on, would you bow your head right now? Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.